Let's take a look at what's making news around the world this morning. Matt Bradley is back with us from London. Hi, Matt. Hey, good morning to you guys again. I'm going to start off with the nuclear watchdog uh, for the United Nations. They cut a deal yesterday to maintain some level of cooperation with Iran for at least three months after Iran steps away from that 2015 nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, that was signed by the Barack Obama administration. Now, the announcement was made by the International Atomic Energy Agency chief, Rafael Grossi, at Vienna Airport after a weekend trip to Iran. Iran has been gradually breaching terms of that 2015 nuclear pact, the one that was negotiated by the Obama administration, but that was only after former President Donald Trump withdrew from the accord in 2018 and reimposed sanctions on Iran. Now, loneliness has long been a problem for Japan's elderly population, but now it's so much worse with the isolation of COVID. Now, the government has added a Ministry of Loneliness to its cabinet earlier this month to try to tackle the problem head on. Loneliness has been connected to lots of social problems in Japan, like suicide, poverty, and a uniquely Japanese form of reclusiveness called hikikomori. Now, the mayor of Lyon, seen as France's second city, has created controversy by removing meat from school lunches. Gregory Doucette is a member of the Green Party, and he had said that serving vegetarian meals in schools would quicken and streamline service, but the government in Paris has responded with criticism, the Minister of Culture even saying that we can't be putting ideology on our children's plates. Guys, see what happens there. All right, Matt, thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. Coming up, the House looks at a way to lift millions of children out of poverty. How they'll do it and why some lawmakers say the proposal is a bad idea. Next. All this month, they are the black trailblazers and everyday heroes who've broken barriers, pushed for change, and brought progress to our country. Join us as we share their stories and celebrate groundbreaking changemakers. All this month on Today. In the news this morning, three people are dead after a shooting at a Louisiana gun store and shooting range. One person opened fire inside the store on Saturday, prompting others to begin shooting. The town sheriff says the suspect was killed in the shootout. Officials are now investigating the incident. A police officer from Pennsylvania was arrested for his alleged involvement in the U.S. Capitol riot. Joseph Fisher was also suspended from his job as a patrolman. Fisher allegedly posted a video on Facebook of him entering the Capitol on January 6th. He's been charged with obstruction of law enforcement, entering a restricted building, disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds, and obstruction of justice. Fisher did not respond to a request for comment. More than 200 people have been federally charged in connection to the riot. And two Central Park ice rinks owned by the Trump Organization will now stay open until the end of skating season. The Woolman and Lasker rinks were set to close Sunday after New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio ended the contract. The mayor reversed his decision late last night, saying New York City kids deserve all the time on the ice this year. But moving forward, the city will not do any business with the Trump Organization, according to de Blasio. Joe, I got to say, those rinks are kind of a New York rite of passage, so maybe you should get out there on them. You know, where I grew up, the ice rinks were run by Mother Nature, which just made <laughs> things much easier. You have to worry about anyone else managing them. True, true. <laughs> Thanks, Savannah. <laughs> Today, the House Budget Committee will start marking up the new coronavirus relief bill. It includes a big expansion of the child tax credit. The tax credit is so large that some experts predict it could cut child poverty 
by 40 to 50 percent, lifting more than four million kids out of poverty. NBC News Now, NBC News Now's Aaron Gilchrist joins us now from Cleveland, the city with the highest child poverty rate among all of America's major cities. So, Aaron, that is really a breathtaking number. Help us understand how would this tax credit expansion lift so many kids out of poverty? Well, Joe, as it stands right now, about uh, the, the tax credit is up to $2,000 per child, and parents get that money uh, at the end of the year. When they file their taxes, that, that money is then given to them as a tax credit. This new plan says that it would essentially raise that dollar amount to $3,000 or $3,600, depending on the age of the child, and that the money would be paid out monthly, so $250 to $300 a month, uh, and it would be fully refundable. And, and that means that uh, whether you're a parent who makes uh, the, the upper end of the income threshold or you make no income at all, you'll still be able to receive that credit. The idea being that that would then help some of the, the poorest families in this country. There are 11 million children in this country who are living in poverty, according to the Census Bureau, Joe. And uh, different analyses of this plan indicate that that number could be cut in half with this childhood uh, child tax credit change. Aaron, critics of the Democrats' proposals say it's just another form of welfare instead of a real tax credit. Why, why do they feel that? Well, again, it's this, this idea that even if you don't have an income, if you're not paying taxes in some cases, uh, you could still receive this money. There's been criticism from Republicans, uh, uh, Marco Rubio and uh, Senator, Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Mike Lee both put out a statement uh, when this plan first came to light. We'll put it up on the screen so folks can see it. They essentially said, we do not support turning the child tax credit into what has been called a child allowance paid out as a universal basic income to all parents. That is not tax relief for working parents. It is welfare assistance. The statement went on to say an essential part of being pro-family is being pro-work. Congress should expand the child tax credit without undercutting the responsibility of parents to work to provide for their families. Now, Senator Rubio also put up a, a plan that uh, was actually a higher dollar amount uh, for a child tax credit, but it would be tied to income. Senator Mitt Romney has also introduced a plan, Joe, that again would raise the amount of money that would be available for this tax credit, but it would also, uh, be, it would also eliminate some other social programs that help some of the poorest families. Joe? Aaron, I know you spoke to some parents in Cleveland about this. What are they saying about it? Parents say that they need the help. Any dollar amount would be something that would be helpful to them. Cleveland, as we noted, has the highest poverty rate in the country for any large city. Uh, about 31% uh, is the poverty rate here. And one analyst here in Cleveland told me that uh, in some neighborhoods, 60% of kids are living in poverty. Uh, the parents we talked to here explained why they need the help. I have to choose between either the gas bill getting paid, um, the light bill getting paid, um, car note it's 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 not an easy thing to do in no way shape or form um because it's 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 like a libra scale if you think about it you know what what weighs more than the other what has a bigger priority than than the other it's like robbing peter to pay paul jamari there has a two-year-old son and a wife who's expecting in a few months he's also helping with his mother who has some health issues he says that uh, any dollar amount would be helpful to his family to make sure that they can pay bills and make and make sure that ends meet. Uh, if this plan is approved and uh, Democrats are likely to push through the entire COVID relief plan, uh, these payments would start possibly as early as July. Joe. All right, Aaron, thanks for taking a closer look at this. Appreciate it.
The push to reopen schools is moving forward, but not without issues. Parents are frustrated with federal guidelines and the education their kids are receiving, while teachers are split on returning to work. NBC News reporter Amanda Golden is in Northern Virginia with more. Good morning, Joe and Savannah. I'm here in Northern Virginia. This is an area that's seeking to reopen their schools in the next few weeks, and it's coming as Virginia's Governor Ralph Northam said that he wants all schools open in some capacity by mid-March. Now, keep in mind, this is an area that does fall within the red zone, the red zones being about 76% of the entire country right now, according to analysis by Burbio, that is down from 91% last week, and that's due in part to the dropping COVID cases that we're seeing throughout the country, but this is still a work in progress for the schools here because keep in mind despite the cdc and federal guidance and the white house messaging a lot around wanting to reopen schools and president biden's push to have k through eight schools reopen to five days a week within his first hundred days it really does fall on the localities the districts and the schools themselves to chart their own reopening plan so the school behind me which falls within the alexandria public city school system is starting to map out their progress they're going to try to do a phase mitigation reopening strategy at first have k through five students, special needs students, and English learners be the first ones to come back into the classroom at least two days a week, ultimately getting up to that full hybrid model to have all the way through high school coming in for at least two days a week of school. And I've spent a lot of time talking to parents and teachers and school administrators around how this is all playing out in the community because there's no one size fits all. So take a listen to what some of the parents and teachers have told me here. The virtual learning has been an unmitigated disaster from day one. Um, it is just not an effective way to learn for children of any age. Um, and that's true of my high schoolers. My freshman has never been inside of the school. My senior has lost his senior year. There comes a point where you just have to say enough is enough. I am really excited to go back. I, I can't wait to go back. I have been waiting all year long. I've been saying, I hope we go back this spring. I, um, I really feel for our seniors. I've been a high school teacher for a long time. And in June, I share their joy of graduation. I share their joy, their rite of passage to so many things that make high school so special to them. I'm nervous. I am getting my second dose soon. Hopefully that will go, the nervousness will go away. But you know, it's, it's a scary time to be a teacher knowing that you're interacting with students. And I mean, the, did the CDC come out with guidelines for children being vaccinated? So Joe and Savannah, you hear right there, there's continuous tension and it's not a full plan. It's not something that either parents feel entirely enthusiastic about or teachers feel entirely confident returning to the schools. It's going to take some time, but keep in mind that Virginia is a state, is a commonwealth rather, that is really trying to emphasize teacher vaccinations. They're making teachers a priority, even though that's not part of the CDC guidelines as a necessity in order for schools to reopen safely. Back to you guys. Now to controversy surrounding a Northern California school board after several members were caught on a hot mic mocking parents in their district during an online meeting. As NBC News correspondent Kathy Park reports, every single member has now stepped out. This morning, all members on a Northern California school board are out after a hot mic moment landed them in hot water. Are we alone? Yeah. <laughs> If you're going to call me out, I'm going to you up. <laughs> the Board of Trustees with the Oakley Union Elementary School Board vented about parents in their district during a virtual meeting last week, unaware that some of them were logged on. They don't know what we right. do behind the scenes, and it's really unfortunate exactly. that they 
they want to pick on us because right. they want their babysitters back. Right. Right. The candid conversation cuts off when the group realizes they are broadcasting live. We have the meeting open to the public right now. Nuh-uh. Immediately, outraged parents demanded the members step down. The backlash gaining more momentum through an online petition calling for their resignations. It was upsetting. I, I, I'm lost for words. If my child did that on Zoom, he would be in trouble. By Friday, all four members resigned and issued an apology. The board president said her babysitter comment was callous and uncalled for. In a joint statement, the others added, we realize it is our responsibility to model the conduct that we expect of our students and staff, and it is our obligation to build confidence in district leadership. Our comments failed you in both regards. This viral moment now becoming a lesson for the school community as it commits to turning the attention back on students and safely returning them to the classroom. Coming up, shooting for the stars. The civilians preparing to fly a rocket ship around the Earth next. All this month, they are the black trailblazers and everyday heroes who've broken barriers, pushed for change, and brought progress to our country. Join us as we share their stories and celebrate groundbreaking changemakers. All this month on Today. month they are the black trailblazers and everyday heroes who've broken barriers pushed for change and brought progress to our country join us as we share their stories and celebrate groundbreaking change makers all this month on today the impeachment trial covid relief we're going to find out quickly whether this is going to be a functional bipartisan government would you support some raise in the minimum wage asking about vaccine distribution where is the bottleneck if it's sunday it's meet the press As Joe Biden takes office, the major changes and challenges ahead, the vaccine effort picks up. Where are the majority of those doses? NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. You're watching NBC News Now. We've got some breaking news. Trucks carrying the first U.S. shipment of the coronavirus vaccine. Hope for a whole lot of people who have been waiting months and months. It's news made for your streaming world. in our changing world. Download the NBC News app. Are we vaccinating right now to keep ahead of these mutant strains? We still have a demand that far exceeds supply. He's the first African-American crew member on an extended mission on the International Space Station. To be able to see someone that looks like them, that is super important. Perhaps the most successful gospel artist today. Where you're going is another 
bigger than where you've been. I am looking forward to seeing you in Tokyo. Thank you today, show family. Love you guys. Love you back. History in the making, the beginning of a new era in America. As Joe Biden takes office, the major changes and challenges ahead. What about the vaccines? The vaccines we have now, can they stop the South African variant? The first youth poet laureate captivating the nation and capturing our story. I had this understanding that the world is watching us, that we have the eyes of history and the future upon us. NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. A 37-year-old billionaire is paying for himself and three other civilians to take a multi-day trip orbiting the Earth in a SpaceX rocket. It's part of a huge fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Hospital. And today we can reveal the first crewmate he has selected. NBC News correspondent Tom Costello covers aviation for us and joins us now from Washington with the exciting news. Hey, Tom, good morning. Hey, Joe, yeah, I'm sorry. You, you missed out on the first seat anyway. <laughs> but here's, here's who's going. She's a survivor of childhood cancer who decided when she was 10 she wanted to come back and work on the medical staff at St. Jude. She's done that. None of these four civilians has any astronaut experience, but they are signing up for the ride of their lives. Ten-year-olds aren't supposed to worry about losing a leg or their life to cancer. But 19 years ago, Haley Arsenault had big dreams. Beat cancer, earn a black belt in Taekwondo, learn fluent Spanish, travel the world, and return to St. Jude to help kids like her. Today, Haley is 29. She's done all that and more. Now a physician's assistant in the oncology unit at St. Jude. But she had one more childhood dream she thought was out of reach after losing a piece of her femur to bone cancer. A few months before I was diagnosed, my family went to NASA in Houston. And, um, and of, of course, I wanted to be an astronaut after I went there. Enter Jared Isaacman. A 37-year-old billionaire and civilian pilot who's also always wanted to go into space and who recently told us of his plans to pay Elon Musk SpaceX to send him and three other civilian astronauts into orbit and wrapping it into a $200 million fundraising effort for St. Jude. This is a significant first step towards a world where everyone can go and explore amongst the stars. Jared's first pick for a fellow crew member, Haley, someone who benefited from the life-saving research and care at St. Jude and is now giving back. I think she's going to send a message to the world that you can face, you know, really, really difficult times, even even as a child, and still grow up and fulfill your dreams. Anyone who contributes any amount to the St. Jude fundraising effort can be considered for the third astronaut seat. The fourth seat will go to someone with an entrepreneurial vision to make a difference. Already, Jared has been swamped with video applications. I'm a pilot, scuba diver, skydiver, have done research in Siberia. I create and host my own science videos of bringing space down to Earth for all ages. Inspiration 4 will be the first ever all-civilian crew mostly controlled from the ground. Honestly, I'm not nervous at all. I um, And I think that my cancer journey prepared me for this. As for Haley's mom, there's not a professional astronaut on this mission. I was asking, well, how many astronauts are going along with these four? And that's when she said none. And uh, I was a little taken aback by that. Inspiration four set to lift off by year's end. How old you get, you always have a mom, right? It's not too late if you want to donate and raise your hand to go along. Jared tells me 
He'll have the other crew members selected by the end of this month, and then the preparations begin right away. Lots of training at SpaceX headquarters in Los Angeles. And oh, by the way, Joe, the fundraising effort for St. Jude has also taken off. Jared tells me they're already more than half the way towards their goal. Back to you. That's great. Love, love Haley. Love Haley's mom as well. And Tom, to be clear, because all of us aren't billionaires, it does not matter how much you donate, any amount will get you on the list. Is that right? Could be five bucks, could be 500,000 bucks. In your case, for example, could be five million bucks. Whatever you can <laughs> donate will get you on that list as a potential candidate to join them so keep in mind there are only two seats left right one is for who donates another one is for the entrepreneur who has some sort of passion that they want to share with the world it's a cool story tom thank you so much yeah. appreciate it you bet tom always with the cool stories yes. especially lately <laughs> it's time for our cnbc money minute the biggest financial headlines of the day and why they matter to you bertha coombs is back with us hi bertha Hey, good morning, guys. China's foreign ministry is calling on the Biden administration to lift all trade restrictions on Chinese companies. Now, former President Trump sanctioned dozens of companies over the past three years, citing national security concerns. Huawei is the most prominent firm that suffered from the orders as it dropped from the world's top smartphone vendor to sixth place. It's unclear what action President Biden may take, but he has maintained a firm tone on China. He told European allies on Friday to prepare for, quote, long-term strategic competition with Beijing. The CEO of Porsche is warning the luxury automaker's operations could be affected by a serious global shortage of semiconductors. Tell CNBC the industry has been greatly impacted because of the big demand for consumer electronics and the rebound in car sales during the pandemic. Shortages of essential chip components have brought assembly lines to a standstill. Analysts say they've hit the auto sector especially hard because of its so-called just-in-time supply chain when materials are moved just before they're actually needed. And Tesla has made about $1 billion on paper from its investment in Bitcoin, according to one Wall Street analyst. In a note, Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities says the company is on a path to make more from Bitcoin than from the sales of its cars all last year. Earlier this month, Tesla disclosed in an SEC filing that it bought one and a half billion dollars in Bitcoin sometime in January. The cryptocurrency has been on a tear this year, already doubling, and its market value topped one trillion dollars for the first time last week. And as of last night, right now it's trading at about $53,000. Last night it topped 58000 Very volatile. Back over to you. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Bertha. Thank you. More now from NBC News' week-long series called State of the Struggle. Every day this week, our platforms will be highlighting efforts to address racial inequality in America. NBC News correspondent Tremaine Lee had a candid conversation with two women who literally inherited the struggle for equality through their iconic parents. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X have been described as the sword and the shield. Freedom fighters whose styles were very different, but whose goals were largely the same. Malcolm and Martin, forever linked, their legacies, their movements, and their families. I love her so much. They became like my extended family of sisters. Bernice King and Eliasa Shabazz call themselves sister friends. They've literally inherited their father's legacies, which at times can be a lonely birthright. Who do you talk to when you're when when your father one is has a holiday 
You know, we're the only one living first generation whose father has a memorial in the nation's capital. But was there a moment when it dawned on you like, my father is Malcolm X, Malcolm X? <laughs> the Malcolm X that we yeah. kind of... <laughs> yes, it did. Um, it's funny, when I went to college, people were chasing me on campus. Are you Malcolm X's daughter? I was like, oh my gosh, yes. You know, and, and trying to understand what that meant. I saw that people had these enormous expectations of who they thought I should be. Instead of the so-called Negro man continuing to watch his churches being bombed and his little girls being murdered, it's time for the so-called Negro man to take a stand. Uh, I don't think violence solves any social problem. It only creates new and more complicated problems. I think it is also necessary to say that the assassination of Malcolm X was an unfortunate tragedy. Instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, uh, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. We will not go away! As today's freedom movements shake America to its core, these women continue their family's work with black liberation on their minds and unity in their spirits. It's going to require consistency, persistency, and not taking for granted because our person is in the White House because we do that a lot. Well, our person won, we can kind of lay back and we cannot let the Messiah complex take over. We got our Messiah now. So we're we looking for them to save us. No, we all have to have hands on deck. I always say that, you know, it's not our responsibility to, to, to do this, right? It's not just our responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. Coming up, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex officially, quote, stepping away from their royal duties. Reported reaction from Prince William and what's next for the monarchy after this. All this month, they are the black trailblazers and everyday heroes who've broken barriers, pushed for change, and brought progress to our country. Join us as we share their stories and celebrate groundbreaking changemakers all this month on Today. An effort to recall California Governor Gavin Newsom is gaining momentum. State officials have accepted more than 80% of the signatures required to trigger a recall election. CNBC special correspondent Scott Cohn explains what happens next. Joe, Savannah, we are less than one month away now from the deadline for supporters of a recall of California Governor Gavin Newsom to gather the signatures they need to get it onto the ballot. Here's where we stand. They need about one and a half million signatures. The California Secretary of State's office says it's received 1.1 million signatures, uh, of which only about 668,000 uh, have been validated. But experts say that may be enough as the momentum continues now to actually get it onto the ballot. Of course, Gavin Newsom was elected in a landslide just in 2018. The big difference, the COVID-19 pandemic and lots of anger on both sides about his handling of it. If this recall does qualify, though, the Republicans that are backing it face a bit of a dilemma here in what has become a very blue state. How much do Republicans want to focus just on recalling Governor Newsom 
and, and essentially make the case that we know President Trump is not popular in California and so we're a different type of Republican Party? Or will we see Republicans in California embrace President Trump and say, he's no longer president, but he's our party leader? It's a test for the Democrats as well, though, a test of party unity. How far are they willing to back Gavin Newsom? He also has generated some anger from the left over the pandemic response. The deadline for the signatures is March 17th. If the drive qualifies, it's not likely to get on the ballot before late summer or early fall. And where we stand in the pandemic is going to decide how this recall ultimately goes. Scott Cohn, NBC News, Redwood City, California. Joe, Savannah, back to you. Now, in Britain, fallout is continuing from the announcement that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle will not return as working members of the royal family. Meanwhile, the Queen's 99-year-old husband, Prince Philip, remains in the hospital. NBC News foreign correspondent Kelly Kobaya joins us now from London with more on the Royal Rift. Kelly, good morning. Good morning, Savannah. Yeah, the decision to step away, this final decision to step away uh, from royal duties didn't come as a surprise. But today, British newspapers, at least one, is reporting that Prince William is upset about the way his brother, Prince Harry, handled it. This morning, the royal family rift is still raw. The Sunday Times, quoting unnamed sources close to Prince William, reportedly saying the future king is sad and genuinely shocked by his brother and Meghan's statement about leaving the royal family, calling it insulting and disrespectful to the queen. Neither the Sussexes nor Kensington Palace would comment on the report, and NBC News has not been able to confirm it. Buckingham Palace announced Friday the Duke and Duchess of Sussex were stepping away from the responsibilities and duties that come with a life of public service. Prince Harry and Meghan responded, saying, regardless of their official roles, we can all live a life of service. Service is universal. It comes just days after the couple revealed Meghan is pregnant with their second child, and they'd agreed to a wide-ranging interview with Oprah. The couple this morning renewing their commitment to causes like the Invictus Games, which Prince Harry founded. How's he doing? He seems better than he has done for a while, which is really great to see. I put some ideas out late, late on Friday night, and I've just literally had a, an email back with, with his views. And he's got a deep abiding care for the men and women who've been injured in, in, in service. Prince Harry keeping a promise he made last year when the couple took a break from their royal roles. What I want to make clear is we're not walking away. Committed to causes like conservation in Botswana and Meghan's charity SmartWorks, helping British women in the workplace. But their roles promoting British sport and culture will go to other working family members, along with Prince Harry's honorary military titles. Those roles won't fall to his brother. Surprisingly little extra responsibility is going to fall on Prince William. He has, for the last year, really um, taken onto his shoulders the fact that he's not going to have his younger brother uh, helping out. Princess Diana's sons now officially going their separate ways. One a very famous private citizen, the other a future king. And the two could be reunited here in London around July of this year for the unveiling of a statue to their mother, Princess Diana, although none of that has been confirmed as yet. Prince William, for his part, was out at an event today at a vaccination center. He was asked about his grandfather, Prince Philip, and his condition. He said he's doing okay, and he said doctors are keeping an eye on him and gave a wink, so perhaps an indication that Prince Philip really is doing okay, guys. <laughs> All right, that's great news. Kelly, thank you so much.
Now to an incredible story about strength, resiliency, and embracing life. For the first time in this country, a patient has received a second face transplant at, Bring transplant at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. NBC News senior national correspondent Kate Snow joins us with an exclusive look at this remarkable story. Kate, good morning. Good morning, Savannah and Joe. I have to tell you, Carmen Tarleton is one of the most resilient, wonderful, positive people I've ever met. So inspiring. In 2007, her former husband broke into her home, attacked her with a baseball bat, and then sprayed lye, the chemical, in her face and all over her body. She ended up with 80% of her body mm. burned, a horrific disfigurement of her face. She had a first face transplant back when the surgery was very new, back in 2013, and now she's making history for being only the first American in this, the first American to have a second face transplant. Carmen Tarleton is proudly showing off her new face seven months after surgery. And here you are. And here I am. Very happy. <laughs> the chemical attack left Carmen blind in her right eye and legally blind in the left. She's had 73 reconstructive surgeries. People might wonder how you've had the strength. Well, my key to that success is not focusing on negative things. Her first face transplant lasted seven years, but slowly her body began to reject it. When my first face transplant failed, I basically went back to looking disfigured. I didn't have eyelids anymore. I lost my lips. Was it a hard decision to decide to go through it again? No. So I had said to Dr. Tomahawk, if I'm a candidate, I want another chance. Dr. Bowden Pomahawk has been Carmen's plastic surgeon since she was airlifted to Brigham and Women's Hospital nearly 14 years ago. Because her immune system was less sensitive, the historic second face transplant was less risky than the first. But still, there were concerns about rejection. How complicated was it to do this a second time? It's always complicated. I think uh, the second time is a little worse in some ways because we're dealing with a lot of unknowns again. A team of 40 performed the complex surgery. It took 20 hours over two days. We were incredibly lucky and, and found a pure luck donor that had a lot of characteristics common with Carmen's uh, own body. Something that you would hope for a sibling to have. When you look in the mirror, do you see yourself? This is my face. It was given to me. It's not the original face I was born with. And every time I look in the mirror, I think of Casey. Casey Harrington was 36 years old with a 15-year-old daughter. She struggled with heroin abuse, and last July, when she overdosed on fentanyl, they couldn't bring her brain function back. She once told her sister-in-law, Bobby, she wanted to be an organ donor. How many people did she end up saving? She saved five lives and then the facial transplant for Carmen. Initially, though, there was some trepidation about donating Casey's face. Our initial emotion was no, um, that, you know, that's not going to be okay. We can't live with that. Um, the more research we did and recipients and how their lives had changed, the better we felt about it. It gave us hope in what would otherwise appear to be a completely hopeless time, um, especially for her daughter. And on those difficult times, you gave me the biggest gift 
anybody could have given me. When Casey's whole family met Carmen virtually. You do have a lot of her features, like on your forehead, you have her birthmark. Yes. Her hairline. It was a conversation that helped ease their heartbreak. It would be nice after this COVID thing passes to actually meet you guys in person and give you all a great big hug. I would love that. And you can kiss, kiss my face. The Harrington family was moved by Carmen's positivity. Everyone who meets her is. As a society, we're, we lean towards the negative. I think the whole world does now. So it's much easier to complain and to talk about amongst ourselves what doesn't work. If I stayed there, I would be what society said I would be. You're going to be miserable, you're disabled, you're blind, you're dependent. I didn't listen to any of that. I focused on what I was going to do now. Before her injuries, Carmen was a nurse. Now she tells her story to help others. My life expanded greatly, and I had to step into that. And to step into that, you need to find your confidence, you need to find your stability, you need to find your, you know, your self-worth. I'm excited to see what life's going to bring me now. I have a lot of patience. When I'm ready, things will happen, and they're already happening. Kate, you said it. What resiliency there. And so neat to see her yeah. meet the, the family of the woman who, whose face was donated to her. Kate, what does Carmen's future look like from I here? Know. Yeah, Savannah, she told me that she only worries about the things that she can control. She mm -hmm. lets her doctors worry about the medical challenges. Dr. Pahamak said he's hopeful that this face transplant may last longer than the first one did at seven years, maybe even the rest of her life. But she's only the second person in the whole world to have a second face transplant. So wow. there's really no way to know. Mm -hmm. Kate, the goal of the second face transplant obviously is not just about how someone looks, right? Yeah, it's also about the functions of a face, Joe. Having eyelids, for example, will help protect the retina in Carmen's functioning eye. Having a nose to breathe through, lips to speak and eat, that is all just as important. She even joked with me that because she has a full left ear now, she can wear an earring mm -hmm. and she can wear glasses and face masks, things that we don't even think about. Mm -hmm. And she's also going to continue her work, as you might expect, as a motivational speaker. She is so motivating. She's motivating all of us. Absolutely. Boy. What a story, yeah. Kate. Thank you. It's a lot of things into perspective. Thank mm -hmm. you so much, Kate. And that does it for this hour of Morning News Now. But the news continues right now. This morning, nearly 130 Boeing 777s worldwide grounded. Mayday, mayday. After terrifying moments in the air Saturday when a United flight leaving Denver for Hawaii was forced to make an emergency landing. Aircraft uh, just experienced a engine failure, need to turn immediately. The plane's right engine failed mid-flight, bursting into flames. All of a sudden, it was just this big, you could just feel it like boom, and you could hear it, and you just... We started shaking. I feared for my life. I did at that point. So the engine was on fire and there was smoke coming out of it. So uh, I told my wife that the engine was gone and she got up and looked out the window and uh, was a little bit panic stricken. The pilots managed to land safely. Panic and fear turned to relief. None of the 239 passengers and crew on board were hurt.
Overnight, Boeing saying all 128 of its 777 jets powered by a specific Pratt & Whitney engine should be grounded. The engine maker dispatching a team to work with investigators. The NTSB says two hollow fan blades that are unique to the engine were fractured. And an engine cover known as a cowling also came off. That debris scattered throughout neighborhoods outside Denver. All of a sudden I heard a big boom uh, and the house shook. I get up and look at it and I, I see right away it's the front end of an airplane engine. The FAA now requiring immediate or stepped up inspections of the plane. United, the only American carrier affected by the order, saying it would temporarily stop flying nearly two dozen affected 777s. Aviation experts puzzled by the flying plane parts. This is a bit troubling because the structure should still remain attached, even if you have a fan blade. Savala, and um, she's in Florida, Miami, and Tim Eichinger, uh, who is in Wisconsin. They have different businesses and uh, live in different places, but both share the same message with me when I spoke to them on the road. And that was American small businesses are hurting, hurting badly, and they need help now. And it's in all of our interest to make sure they get the help now. Small businesses are the engines of our economic progress. They're the glue in the heart and soul of our communities. But they're getting crushed. Since the beginning of this pandemic, 400,000 small businesses have closed. 400,000. And millions more are hanging by a thread. It's hurting black, Latino, and Asian American communities the hardest. Walk down any Main Street and you see it. Empty storefronts, goodbye signs hanging in the windows. Maybe it's the pizza place you used to take your family to dinner or the hardware store that always had the tool you needed. It's the mom and pop shop that's, that's sponsored by, uh, that is supported by the community and in turn they support the community. They sponsor the Little League team, the barber shop with the first dollar bill that he or she earns still taped to the wall along with a picture of their kids who are now in college. These small businesses, not the ones with 500 employees, but these small businesses that with a handful of folks, they are 90% of the businesses in America. But when the Paycheck Protection Program was passed, a lot of these mom and pop businesses got muscled out of the way by bigger companies who jumped in front of the line. And I want to be clear, the Paycheck Protection Program is a bipartisan effort. Democrats and Republicans helped pass it. But Democrats and Republicans have also voiced concerns about improving it. With their input, that's what we're doing in our administration, improving it. In the last month, we've increased the share of funding for small businesses with fewer than 10 employees by nearly 60%. For businesses and rural communities, the share of funding is up nearly 30% since we came to office. And the share of funding distributed through banks that traditionally help minority-owned businesses is up more than 40%. And today, I'm announcing additional changes to the PPP program that will make sure we look out for the mom-and-pop businesses even more than we already have. As I explained to Pilar and Tim, the two small business people I spoke to, on Wednesday, the Small Business Administration is going to establish a 14-day exclusive P 
PPP loan application period for businesses and nonprofits with fewer than 20 employees. People can, can go out and find uh, how to get a hold of these, these loans. People can find out more at the SBA.gov. Small Business Administration will also remove barriers that have stopped many businesses from being able to apply for these loans. For example, we're making it so that a student loan default or a non-fraud related criminal record does not prohibit someone from applying for the program. We're also making it easier for those one-person businesses, like the home repair contractors, beauticians, small independent retailers, to secure forgivable PPP loans. At the same time, we're increasing access by increasing oversight. I invite any inspector general in this program with jurisdiction over this program to closely look at these loans and report publicly report on any issues they uncover inconsistent with what I'm saying today. We will ensure every dollar is spent well. These changes will bring much needed long overdue to help to small businesses who really need help staying open, maintaining jobs and making ends meet. And this is a starting point not the ending point. We need Congress to pass my American Rescue Plan. It deals with the immediate crisis facing our small businesses. Now critics say the plan is too big. Well, let me ask them a rhetorical question. What would you have me cut? What would you leave out? The American Rescue Plan targets $50 billion to support, to support the hardest hit small businesses after this program expires at the end of March. Would you not help invest in them? Would you let them continue to go under? Would you leave them out again, like the previous administration did? One of the things I've heard again and again from small business owners like Pilar and Tim is that knowing about support is one thing. Being gaining access to getting is another. That's why we proposed $175 million to bring community organizations in to serve as navigators will help them through this process of application. We will also establish a hotline with help available in multiple languages so folks can pick up a phone and get the help they need to stay open and serve their community. Again, the critics, it's too big. Should we, not, should we stop spending money on them? Do we not want a, re a return on the investment that we make in these businesses to be able to stay open and thrive and pay back? Why would we not want to make sure small businesses who lack teams of lawyers, bankers, and accountants have an advocate, someone they can rely on to direct them to help that's there for them now, will be there for them? The American Rescue Plan is a rescue plan for America's small businesses and America's mainstream businesses, and we need Congress to pass it right away. I'm grateful to the Senate and the House for moving so quickly. And I want to make it clear, I'm prepared to hear ideas about how to make the American Rescue Plan better and cheaper. But we have to make clear who we're helping and who it would hurt. I always try to help people like Tim and Pilar and all the country's small businesses and families, the workers, the communities that depend on them to survive, recover, and grow. And it's my hope, my hope, that as Democrats and Republicans who have backed the PPP program, that Democrats and Republicans will back the American Rescue Plan. 
the vast majority of the American people, more than 70 percent of the American people, including a majority of Republicans, want us to act based on all the polling data, act big and act quickly. Major economists, left, right and center, here and abroad, say we should focus on smart investments that can make jobs available and, and focus on the jobs and in the people prevent long, to prevent long-term economic damage to our nation and to strengthen the economic competitiveness going forward. In fact, an analysis by Wall Street's firm Moody's estimates that if we pass my American Rescue Plan, the economy will create 7 million jobs this year. This year. We've also been in constant contact with the mayors and governors, county officials, members of Congress of both parties in every state. That includes a letter, I might add, from more than 400 mayors from big and small cities, Democrat and Republican. They agree we have to act and act now. They understand we're not going to get our economy back in shape and the millions of people back to work until we beat this virus. Getting our economy back means bringing our small businesses back. And that's what we're going to do. That's what I'm doing today. We're going to focus. The program ends at the end of March, but for the next two weeks, the only folks who can apply for that PPP money are businesses with fewer than 20 employees. Thank you very much. Let's bring in Greg Fife. He's a former senior air safety investigator with the National Transportation Safety Board. Greg, we always are happy to have you. Good morning. Um, you look Good at morning. these situations, obviously, with a very trained eye. What, what jumps out at you here? Well, there are a couple of things, Savannah. One, of course, is this blade failure. This isn't the, the first time it's happened. It, it is a, a unique situation, but there was a previous United Airlines 777 and a JAL 777 that both experienced these failures over the last two years. So, of course, that is of concern. Uh, I think the bigger issue besides the blade and determining why it is failing is this post-event fire that continued to burn until landing. Not only that, we also saw this debris field where you have these huge chunks of aircraft raining down from the sky. That's got to be a big concern. And as I understand it, it's something of a mystery. It is, but there is a phenomenon where these blades, this is the fan section. So these are the largest blades of the engine. And if they come out of the front of the engine like they did, of course, it took the engine cowling off but it, 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 it just deformed it. It's the aerodynamic forces, because remember this aircraft is moving 250, 300 miles an hour. So the aerodynamic forces help take the rest of this engine cowling off. That is a big concern because the engine does have what's called a containment ring. So that shrapnel does not damage the rest of the engine. So all of these things will be looked at by the safety board and its team. Yeah, so that wasn't meant to happen either, of course, um, even in an accident situation. I keep thinking, Greg, what would have happened if this had taken place over the Pacific? This was a plane headed to Hawaii. 
Well, there's two parts to that answer, and that is one, the FAA requires that a manufacturer of a two-engine airplane like this certify it so that it can fly on one engine, which it did, and it did it successfully. However, if this aircraft had been out over the ocean, let's say an hour, two hours, the bigger concern, besides the parts coming off, is the fact that there is this post-accident or post-event fire. Mm. And I'm not sure why that fire continued to burn because there is a fire suppression system on that engine. So that's going to be an issue that the board's going to have to look at. And that work begins today. Greg, thank you very much. We appreciate your expertise. You're welcome. Skydiver have done research in Siberia. American lives lost to COVID-19. They will ask all Americans to join in a moment of silence during a candle lighting ceremony at sundown. President Biden will also deliver remarks and order all flags on federal property to be lowered at half staff for the next five days. Tonight's events, including the president's remarks, will highlight the magnitude of loss that this milestone marks for the American people and so many families across the country. He will also speak to the power of the American people to turn the tide on this pandemic by working together, following public health guidelines, and getting in line to be vaccinated as soon as they are eligible. As you all know, there are a number of confirmation hearings coming up this week, uh, almost half a million Americans. And as we look at these, we're looking at it through the prism of the fact that almost half a million Americans, as I just noted, have lost their lives to this cold pandemic, tens of millions have lost their jobs, families can't put enough food on the table, and millions of children need their schools reopened. And central to the all-hands-on-deck response we're executing from the Biden-Harris administration is having qualified, experienced, and groundbreaking nominees installed as quickly as possible. And we want to thank, of course, the Senate for the steps they are taking. They have taken, I should say, over the last few weeks to support and confirm, often with large bipartisan votes, many of our nominees. Uh, but underlining our pressing need to have our team in place, uh, we have, of course, Merrick Garland, who is currently doing his hearing right now. has been endorsed by multiple former Republican attorneys general as someone faithful to the law, not politics, and who multiple Republican senators agree is apolitical, come, would come to the job with decades of experience. Javier Becerra, Attorney General Javier Becerra, uh, who helped play a role in uh, getting the Affordable Care Act through and has brings decades of health care policy experience to the table. As Attorney General of California, he fought alongside his Republican uh, counterparts to expand access to COVID treatments. Neera Tandon, uh, a brilliant policy expert with experience at the highest levels of government, also running a big think tank in Washington, D.C., who understands firsthand the power of policy in helping families gain a foothold in the middle class. There was a wide spectrum of support, ranging from the Chamber of Commerce to labor unions. Miguel Cardona, a public school teacher, former public school teacher, who will champion and help expedite the reopening of our schools. That will be his first priority. We're eager to see him in place. And Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who served as mayor and will be uh, has formerly served as a mayor and will be invaluable as both parties work to protect families from losing their homes during the COVID outbreak. Uh, as you know, many of you saw the president just made an announcement uh, this morning about important changes to the PPP program to ensure small businesses, especially minority owned and mom and pop businesses, get the help they need to keep their doors open and keep workers on payroll. 98% of companies have fewer than 20 employees, and a big part of this announcement will apply to those companies. Uh, the small businesses employ nearly half of America's workers and account for 44% of our nation's GDP. 
more than 400,000 small businesses have permanently shuttered due to the pandemic. Millions more have lost substantial value, so revenue. So clearly an area where there is uh, a need for great focus. His announcement includes instituting a two-week window starting Wednesday, during which only businesses with fewer than 20 employees, so 90% of them, uh, can apply for relief through the program, so they, that we prioritize support to businesses who were previously left behind. The changes also uh, include expanding eligibility, so that's sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed Americans, as well as immigrants who are lawful permanent residents can receive more support. And finally, the changes announced today will roll back restrictions that disproportionately impacted entrepreneurs of color from receiving relief, including Americans who are behind on student loan payments and business owners who were formerly incarcerated for non-fraud convictions. I also just had an update on the winter storm. On Friday, uh, the president approved a major disaster declaration, as many of you know, for the state of Texas, including public and hazard mitigation assistance for all 254 Texas counties. In that declaration, 70 seven Texas counties were approved for individual assistance, which allows for uninsured property owners to seek federal assistance if their home is damaged by burst pipes uh, caused from freezing weather. More counties will likely, we expect more counties to be added as more work is done to evaluate need, and that's a reflection of FEMA's initial evaluation. In the meantime, the president has asked FEMA to do uh, everything it can to rapidly distribute aid to the state of Texas. So far, more than one million meals have been shipped to Texas, more than four million liters of water have been shipped to Texas. The Department of Defense fixed wing aircraft continue to deliver water in bulk to mul multiple locations in Texas. They've completed nine missions so far with an additional 10 missions planned for today. 69 emergency generators and more than 120,000 blankets have been delivered to Texas. And over the weekend, uh, Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood-Randall, National Economic Council Director Brian Deese called Governor Abbott to update him on the broad federal effort the President has requested to support citizens of the state in coping with the impacts of the storm and, of course, the recovery from here. Uh, last but not least, where's Deborah Saunders? She's in the back. Oh, there she is. Okay, so I'm going to, uh, this, I want to take a moment to recognize a milestone in the briefing room. Today is her last day in the print pool and potentially her last day in the briefing room, although you're, of course, welcome back. And even though she's leaving the White House press corps and full-time reporting, I know she's going to be writing some columns, and I have a feeling we'll be hearing from her um, quite frequently. So congratulations on covering the White House for four years. As many of you know, that that is not for the faint of heart. Ah, so we'll, let's start with your questions. Thank you. I'm your first burnout, but I won't be your last. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's fair. So I'm going to start with a housekeeping question. Oh, okay. Well, is it, we'll, we'll just go to you. We'll go to you, Deborah. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, I, this morning I saw there was no Marine out front in the front door during the, the 945 briefing. And I asked Lower Press, Lower Press says, we don't have to have a Marine out front when the President is in the Oval Office. And I've been getting emails and questions ever since I filed that pool report. Is, if there is a, if there was no Marine out front, does that mean that the President is not in the Oval Office? The President was in the Oval Office this morning, uh, working, receiving the PDB, and all the things that you're aware of from the schedule. Um, there hasn't been a change of policy. So, if, if there's no Marine there, that doesn't mean anything? Uh, again, I mean, I could certainly talk to them about the specific circumstances of this morning, but I can report to you that the President was in the Oval Office and the policy that's long been in place uh, continues to be in place. 
people are fascinated by this. I have two quick Nevada questions. Okay. One, does the president have a position, there's a bill in Nevada to get rid of the caucus and make it a primary, and there's the hope that Nevada's going to be first, Nevada's going to be first. So could you please uh, tell me, does the president have a position on that? There's plenty of time for politics. The president's been in office for a month. Um, I'd refer you to the DNC and others who will uh, make lead that process moving forward. Do you have a position on renaming McCarran after Harry Reid? Hello, President is a big fan, close friend of Harry Reid, uh, worked with him closely on a number of important issues, including getting the Affordable Care Act through. Uh, as I understand it, it's passed uh, the local legislature, I believe, and it's now uh, through, or the local, uh, uh, where it needs to pass locally, I should say, um, and it's now being considered by the FAA, so I would refer you to them. And one last question okay. about, about the way Washington looks right now. Mm -hmm. There are fences everywhere. We have National Guard. What's the president's view, what's the administration's view about how long it's going to keep going on like this? And, and why is why is it going to continue, it looks like, into March? Which piece are you referring I'm to? About the National Guard, I'm talking about all the fences that are around here, mm -hmm. uh, the fences around Capitol Hill. I understand things happened on January 6th. How much longer do you think you're going to have all the security? Well, I would I would look at those a little bit separately because, of course, uh, members of Congress, leadership on the Hill, Democrats and Republicans will make decisions about the security needed and we support at the Capitol, and we certainly support them in that decision-making process. As it relates to the fencing around uh, the White House, uh, you know, we work, of course, closely with the Secret Service, the National Park Service, and the President and the Vice President are certainly uh, eager to have that brought down uh, at an appropriate time, and hopefully that's soon. All right, Josh, we'll go to you. Thanks, Jen. Two questions. You touched on the issue of nominations and confirmations. Mm -hmm. Given the statements of Senator Manchin, Senator Collins, Senator Romney, what do you see as near Tandon's path to become director of OMB? And also, what does it mean for the Biden agenda if this process keeps on being delayed and drawn out? The process of confirmations? Well, I, I, let me start with that. I would say that um, we experienced some uh, intransigence uh, during, the, during the transition, uh, some delays in processes that had previously worked at a more rapid pace. Our view is that we've hopefully moved past that. We've seen a number of our uh, nominees uh, move forward uh, over the past couple of weeks pretty quickly with large bipartisan votes, and we certainly welcome that. Uh, but we are eager to have our team in place this week has a number of important hearings. There are a number of important votes this week. We would love to end the week with a Secretary of Education in place as an example, and certainly others as we uh, as we look to have the full team uh, and hopefully a full cabinet meeting at some point in the near future. As it relates to Neera Tandon, let me just say that the President nominated her because he believes she'd be a stellar OMB director. She's tested. She's a leading policy expert. She's led a think tank uh, in, this, in Washington that has has done a great deal of work on policy issues, but has done a great deal of bipartisan work as well. She's won widespread support and endorsements, ranging from labor unions to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and she's uh, rolled up her sleeves and done the work. She's met with more, to, more than 35 senators, Democrats and Republicans herself. Uh, this is a process. Confirmations, getting individuals confirmed is. She has uh, two committee votes this week, uh, and we're working toward that, and we'll continue to work in supporting her nomination. Do you still see a cap that 50 votes or more? We do. And then secondly, on Iran, mm -hmm. uh, we've seen some issues with regard to Iran restricting access to nuclear inspectors. Mm -hmm. And I was curious for how this works with Secretary of State Blinken saying he expects strict compliance by Iran in order to re-enter the deal with the United States. 
Well, first, I think you're referring to the reports from the IAEA over the weekend and kind of discussions uh, they had about uh, Iran's compliance and access uh, that they um, would have or were looking to have uh, to uh, Iran's um, facilities on the ground. Uh, and certainly, I would send you to them on that. But I would say that uh, what Secretary Blinken's and uh, announcement uh, and what our uh, announcement uh, that came out last week is a reflection of is an openness to have a conversation, an openness to diplomacy. And that invitation was issued by the Europeans uh, to invite us, to invite the Iranians to the table, to have a conversation. Uh, we have indicated, uh, sent no indication that we are uh, willing to take additional steps in advance of that. What we're willing to do is sit at a table and have a diplomatic conversation uh, because we are looking uh, to, uh, to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. And we believe diplomacy is the best way to do that. Uh, let's go, Jeff. Just a, one follow-up on Iran. Uh, Iran's Ayatollah said today that Iran may enrich uranium up to 60% purity if needed. What is the White House's reaction to that, and how does that impact the statement that, that you made last week about openness to talks? Well, again, Jeff, uh, you know, Iran is a long way from compliance, and that hasn't changed. I said that last week, and many, and I believe my colleague, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, conveyed that just yesterday. That has not changed. All, what we are open to is a diplomatic conversation, and our view is that diplomacy is the best path, best path forward to preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Uh, that does not mean they have clearly not taken the steps needed to comply, uh, and we have not taken any steps or in, in made an indication that we are going to meet the demands that they are putting forward either. Does this kind of rhetoric concern you, though, in terms of the possibility for diplomacy? Uh, well, I think we're at the stage where we're waiting. Uh, the Europeans are waiting to hear uh, Iran's reply to their invitation to have a conversation. So that's the stage we're sitting at at this point in time. Also in the realm of diplomacy, uh, China's foreign minister made some remarks uh, today about wanting to re sort of rejig the relationship with the United States, and he called for tariffs to be removed. I know that this policy is under review, along with lots of policies, but can you give any reaction to what he has said and any update on um, President Biden's feelings about tariffs and broader China policy? Well, you know, I think, as we said, uh, around the time when the president uh, had a conversation with President Xi, uh, we uh, believe the relationship with China is one of strong competition. Uh, we want to come to that relationship from a position of strength. That means working in close coordination with our partners and allies around the world, Europeans, other partners in the region, also with Democrats and Republicans in Congress. And it also means we want to do work uh, at home uh, and focus on doing work at home to make sure we are coming to that from a position of strength. As you noted, uh, there's, of course, a review of our tariffs um, and the tariffs that were put in place. I don't have any update on that at this point in time. One last thing, to follow up on what Josh asked you about Nira uh, Camden. You, you said that the White House still sees a pathway. Without Senator Manchin, what is it? Well, again, I think you know she needs the majority of votes in order to get through and be confirmed as the OMB director, and that's what we're working toward. Go ahead, Ed. In that vein, beyond your agenda, is the White House certain that all other cabinet nominees have the support of all members of the Democratic House? 
uh, well, I don't have a whip count for you here, but we are certainly, we take nothing for granted. And part of our effort is not just reaching out to Republicans, which we certainly are doing, and all of our nominees uh, do as well, but also ensuring that Democrats who have questions, who have any concerns, have their questions answered too. And we take nothing for granted in uh, pushing forward with our nominees. Um, in opposing your ten Republicans and at least one Democrat, have said they expected more for the president's nominees in the vein of uniting a divided country. What's your response to that specific criticism that they have leveled, that she spent years stoking that divide on the air and online? Well, here's what I can convey in, uh, about her work as uh, as uh, somebody who ran CAP, uh, the Center for American Progress. Uh, she worked with partners across the ideolo ideological spectrum to develop consensus solutions to addressing the federal tax code, uh, to improving access to high quality educational opportunities. They partnered with AEI in that effort. She worked with, uh, led the effort to work with um, FreedomWorks uh, and others on the R Street Institute on uh, making progress on criminal justice uh, reform. And again, she met with 35 members of the Senate, uh, including Republicans. So she is willing and eager to meet with people who agree with her, of course, but also people who disagree with her. And what she brings to the table is not only decades of policy experience, but um, an expertise and leadership, again, of a, a major think tank in this uh, city, but also somebody who has lived experience. You know, she grew up as the daughter of a, a single mother, somebody who benefited from many of the programs that she would be tasked with determining the, the recommendations on funding for. So uh, she has a record of working with members of both parties or views from both parties, uh, and uh, I, we have no doubt she would do that as budget director. Well, on the COVID bill, um, the president talked a little while ago about it and noted that there are some concerns about the size of the price tag and asked, you know, what would you cut? Would the White House be okay if it went north of $1.9 trillion for whatever reason? Well, uh, I think uh, the president proposed the $1.9 trillion size because he felt that was the, those were the components that were needed to meet the moment we're facing. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, he looks to Congress to negotiate through what can be added or subtracted from that package. But uh, he has the, had the key priority components in it because that's what he felt would meet the moment. That's what health and economic experts were telling him. But uh, I don't have anything more for you beyond the, beyond what he proposed. And real quick on Iran, specifically the hostages that they're holding, mm -hmm. Jake Sullivan said yesterday we've begun to communicate with the Iranians on this issue. They later clarified it's not with Washington directly. So can you just clarify, is this being done through the Swiss or through other European officials instead? We have a range of means of uh, communicating uh, with the Iranians. Um, and uh, we certainly raise uh, American citizens who are being held uh, in Iran uh, through those channels, uh, but I don't have anything more specific and for so you. there's nothing direct going on as far as you know between the United States and Iran? Uh, again, we have a range of channels um, that we navigate or communicate through, uh, direct and indirect, but I don't have anything more specific to lay out for you. Go ahead. Thanks, Judge. I just want to go pick on, on what Ed was saying here. Sure. The president just said that uh, he sort of seemed to put the ball on Republicans for. He mm -hmm. said critics are saying that the plan is too big. What would you have me cut? What would you have me leave out? What 
Is he willing to cut? Is he willing to leave out? And what specifically is the ball? If, if they're going to come to the table and make some offers, what, what's the negotiating topic? We'll see what they offer. Uh, you know, what, what has been offered uh, to date uh, was a proposal of about $600 billion, which falls far, far short of what uh, is needed at this point in time with dual crises that the country is facing. Um, he was making the point, and he did something similar in his remarks on Friday, that, uh, you know, this is a difficult time the country is facing. Uh, that's why 400 mayors have come out and said they support this package. That's why Democratic and Republican governors have come out and said that. Business leaders, others, that's why the majority of the American people support it. So the point he's making, he wasn't offering a negotiation. He was making the point that the key components of this bill are addressing the crisis we're facing. So would you cut funding for schools? Would only half of the schools that need funding get funding? Would only half of the people who uh, are uninsured or, uh, sorry, need, uh, uh, you know, deserve to direct, direct checks? Should only half of them get them? You know, the point he's making is that um, the size of the package is a reflection of the size of the crisis. And you mentioned at the top of your remarks the, the grim milestone that the country is facing today with these 500,000 deaths. Um, as the country is in this moment of reflection, 100,000 of, of those Americans have died within the last month. Um, what reflections is this White House having on, on the last month? Um, as we ask as a country, could more have been done? As Dr. Fauci said today, it didn't have to be this bad. Could more have been done in the last month also? Well, I think we, uh, one, inherited um, a circumstance where there was not a, uh, there were not enough vaccines ordered, there were not enough vaccinators available to vaccinate Americans, and there were not enough places to, uh, for people to go uh, to get those vaccines um, shot into their arms. And, uh, you know, you can always look back and say, we wish we would have done this better, we wish the storm wouldn't have come, uh, but our focus is on building out of the whole that we inherited and ensuring that we are taking every step necessary, every step possible uh, to reach people in their communities, to tap into uh, the manufacturing sector through the DPA, to communicate effectively about eligibility. Uh, and that's, that's what our focus is in on at this point in time, the path forward. Uh, go ahead, Caitlin. A few questions for you. One on the COVID relief bill. Senator Bernie Sanders said he does believe that the parliamentarian is going to rule that $15 minimum wage can be in there. But given two Democrats have said they do not want it in there and they don't want to vote for it if it's in there, if they rule that it can be in there, does President Biden still want to include it? Well, the, the president would not have included an increase in the minimum wage if he did not want to see it in the final package. Uh, and certainly we are in close touch with Senator Sanders and his team, and we hope uh, that he's right and that it is included in the package. Uh, but uh, we'll see what the parliamentarian says. Uh, that process, as you noted, Caitlin, is underway now. Uh, the birdbath, as they call it, my favorite term of the week. And uh, we'll see what comes out on the other end. And then what it looks like for members of Congress and who have express support or, or opposition to it, they'll have to make a decision at that point in time. But the stage we're at right now is it needs to go through the parliamentary process. Okay. And on your tangent, you talked about how you believe, the White House believes she is 
qualified for this job, you talked about her past experience, but the specific criticisms that we're getting from these people who are saying they are not going to vote for her is that Mitt Romney said he is critical of extreme rhetoric, Susan Collins says she's demonstrated exactly the kind of animosity President Biden pledged to transcend, Manchin said he's worried that her statements will have a toxic and detrimental impact on the working relationship that they're expected to have with the budget director, so does the White House believe that her past statements are inflammatory? Well, Caitlin, uh, we would, the president would not have nominated her if he did not think she would be an excellent OMB director. And uh, he nominated her because she is qualified, uh, because she is somebody who has a proven experience and record, as I outlined earlier, of working with different groups and organizations with different political beliefs, uh, and because he believes that her own experience will contribute to taking a fresh perspective and a fresh approach to this position. Uh, so we simply just disagree with uh, whether she's the right person for the job with uh, these senators. So President Biden did not have any concerns about her past statements? I think I'll leave it at what I've said so far. Go ahead. One more, so yeah, one go ahead. more housekeeping. By this time in their presidencies, both Donald President Trump and President Obama had held solo press conferences. Mm -hmm. So are there plans for President Biden to hold a solo press conference anytime soon? He will hold a solo press conference, but I don't have a date for you at this point in time. This week? Not this week, no. <laughs> Go ahead. Will he get the, the Inquisitors himself? What'd you say? Will he get the pick the Inquisitors himself? Well, well, typically any president has a list of people that they're going to call upon, but usually it's a large number of people who are in the press room, and we certainly hope we'll be able to do that in a COVID-safe way. Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. A couple, if I could. Um, one, just following up on Mira Tandon, um, has the White House reached out to any Republicans who have not yet said how they're going to vote? We have been working the phones in touch with uh, Democrats and Republicans and their offices through the course of the weekend. And that also on the COVID bill, um, a CBO analysis uh, suggested that only a small portion of the $130 billion for schools would actually be spent in the current fiscal year. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the White House doing to ensure that money would actually mean that schools could potentially open in March and April before the academic year ends? Well, a, a big part of the challenge here for a number of schools is that uh, they need, in order to operate responsibly and given the threat of budget cuts, they need to obligate funds according to spending plans rather than exhausting all balances as soon as they're received. So the challenge here is how do they plan ahead, right? They can hire, if they need to hire additional teachers now for smaller class sizes, or if they need to hire um, bus drivers, or if they need to hire, they need to do um, improvements to their facilities. Uh, they want to be able to know, uh, understandably, just like any business or company, that they will be able to employ teachers next year and the year ahead. So uh, that's why this funding is so essential, is because they need to be able to plan ahead so that they can make the improvements now, do the hiring now. Uh, go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Um, just quickly on Iran, is, have there been any progress in learning whether Iran is going to come to the table and sit down? I mean, any word, privately, back channels, uh, any progress on that note? Where it really stands right now is the Europeans issued the invitation, and they're waiting for a response uh, from the Iranians. So I don't have anything more to read out beyond that. Um, just building on what Caitlin was saying, I mean, the president, uh, he said that there was going to be a new tone in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Manchin, Collins do not feel that this is a new tone. So how does the president kind of square that, saying that he does want a new tone? We're going to have a new language, new no respect for everyone, and this, you know, fire-on-the-spot kind of policy, he said. Have you asked Pre Senator Manchin and Senator Collins about whether they think uh, President Biden has a new tone? 
Well, I mean, I think Senator Manchin and Senator Collins have said that they, they have concerns about uh, about her tweets and her language. And, and we, we disagree on whether she is the right choice for OMB, to lead the OMB. Uh, but that is a bit of an overstatement to suggest that anyone, and you should ask them, and unless you've had interviews with them, then please speak up and convey that to us. But uh, they both have had regular conversations with President Biden. Uh, we, we look for, let me finish, we look forward to working with them on a range of priorities and issues, uh, whether it's the American Rescue Plan, whether it is uh, immigration, uh, addressing the outdated uh, immigration system, whether it is uh, foreign policy issues, and he'll continue to engage and have discussions with a range of senators, including people where he has disagreements. And I think that's fair, but I think the question is, does the pre is the president okay with the language and rhetoric that Neera Tandem has used in direction of other members of Congress, including some Democrats and especially Republicans? I think the fact that the president nominated her to lead the budget to be uh, running OMB reflects uh, his view that she's the right person to be in his cabinet, to uh, lead uh, the, be overseeing the budget, uh, and that her qualifications, uh, her history of uh, working across the aisle with people from different groups uh, who have different points of view is a reflection of how she would uh, do that role. Can I, can I ask you about um, some members of Malcolm X's family have made public uh, that uh, a letter that they said was written by a deceased police officer uh, that stated that a New York police department and FBI may have been behind the 1965 killing of the activist. I just wanted to know, does the administration think that this is something that should be looked into? I have not seen that letter. If you're, if you want to provide it to us, I'm happy to have the right person look into it after the briefing. Can I ask one more question? Sure, go ahead. Saudi Arabia. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, you know, President Biden, you noted that he is, does not plan to speak with the Crown Prince, uh, but I wanted to ask, what does that actually mean? I mean, the, the president has obviously called for accountability for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, but how is the relationship actually going to change? I mean, is this just symbolism? Do Are we going to have some concrete uh, changes uh, that demonstrate this accountability? Well, what I conveyed last week when we talked about this a little bit is that we are certainly recalibrating our relationship with Saudi Arabia. And part of what I mentioned was uh, that we will have officials communicate from counterpart to counterpart. And uh, that means, as, as you may know, last week the Secretary of Defense uh, had a conversation with, uh, with MBS, and that is the right counterpart to counterpart. We expect the president will have a conversation uh, with the king at an appropriate time. Uh, but there are other components, as you know, of our relationship. Relationship, including uh, the fact that the president, unlike the last administration, is not going to hold back in speaking out when he has objections, concerns about uh, issues related to human rights, freedom of speech, uh, any other concerns he may have about uh, the way things are being run. At the same time, uh, there's an important uh, role we can play in relationship as it relates to uh, the threats that come into the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia from uh, actors in the region. And that is a relationship that we will continue to uh, work with them on. Uh, go ahead. Uh, tonight, the president participating in the memorial for COVID victims. Mm -hmm. Is there any discussion about a more permanent memorial, uh, something that would kind of honor their memory, you know, long term? 
That's a great question. I don't have anything to report out for you, um, but I'm happy to check with our team and see if that's under consideration. And as you noted, I mean, tonight, obviously, he is, uh, he uh, and his, uh, and the vice president, they will be commemorating of the lives lost, the many hundreds of thousands of families who have been impacted by uh, the lives that have been lost from the pandemic, something he also did just a month ago uh, around the inauguration. And so clearly, and, and these remarks I would, uh, I would convey are not, it's not, he will not be providing an update on progress. This is to uh, really have uh, a human moment um, and a moment to remember the people uh, who we've lost over the last year. But I'm happy to talk to our team if there's anything like that under consideration. Uh, previously, you mentioned that there were concerns about how difficult it is to get a vaccine shot. You know, it's hard to sign up for these things mm -hmm. and that the government was looking into making this easier. You know, the, the White House, the federal government is looking into this. What progress has been made on that? Uh, what is under consideration for how the federal government could step in in this situation? Well, we've taken a number of steps, including op working to open several community health centers um, that are in people's local communities, and pe the, the health and medical experts who are working at these health centers often know the people in their communities, and they're trusted by the people in their communities. We also have been working um, with pharmacies and have several uh, dozen uh, pharmacy partners across the country. More than 90% of the people in the and people living in this country, I should say, live within five miles of a pharmacy. That is helps helps many. It doesn't help everybody, but that's another place. We've also worked to um, help launch some mass vaccination sites uh, to ensure that uh, people can go with their families and get vaccinated uh, in these locations. So, you know, we are on track. Uh, we have we have vaccinated. We have we have significantly expedited the rate of vaccination over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're at about in the last week or so, we're at about 1.7 million a day or last two weeks or so, 1.7 million a day. Prior to the president taking office, it was more around 800 to 900,000, uh, but there's work that needs to continue, and uh, that includes uh, ensuring we have the vaccinations, ensuring we have the vaccinators needed to do those vaccinations, and the sites, as I touched on across the country, who can uh, facilitate that. The specific concern is the interface, the websites, the phone calls, how hard it is actually book the appointment, not the actual place to go to. Well, the, the place to go to is a huge factor in that because a community, well, but this is something we've done a lot of work and research on, a community health center that's located in the middle of a community where people know to go to for basic health care, for, uh, you know, child, for questions about their kids, for pediatric appointments, that's a place that's trusted in their community. So it's important that those are places that are open now in a range of communities across the country. Uh, pharmacies, which are actually the places where you can do exactly what you just said and log on online and make an appointment to get a vaccine. We've just doubled the number of uh, vaccines that are going to those pharmacies. We made an announcement last week. Uh, so there are a number of steps that we're taking to uh, ensure that more vaccines are getting out the door and they're getting into communities. Go ahead in the back. Thank you, Jan. I have two brief foreign policy questions. Okay. The president has an excellent relationship with Pope Francis who also has had considerable outreach with Iran. He greeted President Rouhani. He's been in touch with the Ayatollahs. Could he be a possible back channel, or is he already a possible back channel on Iran? 
uh, you're correct. He does, and there's a, certainly a picture on his desk uh, or in his in the Oval Office that is a reflection of that. Um, but uh, the proper channels at this point are uh, we're going to work in partnership uh, and through the P5 Plus One uh, partners and allies. We we worked through for the first round of the uh, putting the JCPOA together. Uh, we're waiting at this point to hear back. The Europeans are waiting to hear back from the Iranians on whether they are open to that diplomatic conversation. So uh, really the, the, the discussions are at that stage at this point. So the Pope's not going to be involved in any way in that? Right? I, I certainly would never claim to speak for Pope, Franz, for pope Francis or any pope. Um, and uh, you can certainly reach out to the Vatican if they have intention of getting engaged in some capacity. Right. The other question I have is that uh, as vice president, the president met and talked to um, the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, does he have any views on the current trial that's going on in Rwanda of Paul Begina, the central figure in the Hotel Rwanda movie, mm -hmm. uh, who many say was kidnapped illegally, but who the government defends and said should be on trial? Uh, it's a great question. I have not spoken with our national security team about uh, the particular trial. I'm happy to talk to them, and we can follow up with you after the briefing. Would you do that? Happy to. Yeah, absolutely. You. Go ahead. Um, one more on the other hand, and then I sure. move on to a different topic. Um, you said she's only met with 35 senators. Is that correct? Is there oh. over at least 35? Had over 35 meetings. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason she's not met with more? Has any GOP senator refused to meet with her? I don't think we're going to speak to, as we wouldn't in any case, um, who she's met to or give you get, get met with or give you a list of to protect the privacy of senators. But uh, 35 meetings with Republican and Democratic senators is actually quite a significant number of, of meetings in the process. But okay, point taken. But if you look at how controversial her nomination is in, in the context of your broader legislative agenda and other legislative items that will face an uphill battle in Congress, do you risk? Uh, do you risk political capital by forging ahead with this, or do you see it completely unrelated? Uh, look, I think uh, the president nominated Neera Tandon because she, he felt she was the right person to lead the budget office um, because she has uh, decades of experience, uh, because she would bring fresh perspective to the job, uh, because uh, she has a record of working with uh, people from a range of organizations of different viewpoints. Uh, but, uh, you know, and we're going to, we, we remain committed to moving that process forward to a confirmation. But there are a range, even areas where we disagree, we may have Disagreement, of course, with Senator Manchin or Senator Collins about whether she's the right person to lead, but we are still going to work with them on a range of other issues uh, that are of mutual interest um, and of interest to the American people. And that includes the rescue plan, that includes uh, you know, many components of the president's agenda moving forward. Go ahead. Go ahead. One other one on the semiconductor shortage, mm -hmm. which I asked about, I think, two weeks ago or a week ago now. Um, Brian Deese and Jake Sullivan, I think, are working on this, and um, you confirmed that there was outreach to the Taiwanese and other countries. Mm -hmm. Do you have any update on responses that you got from these countries on how to fix it? And I know you guys have also acknowledged that there is no short-term fix, but something in the medium term, since it is really impacting a lot of um, businesses. 
Absolutely, and there's been outreach to the manufacturing sector and companies uh, as well to discuss the impact of the shortage. You mentioned the letter uh, that was reported that uh, Brian Deese, our NEC director, sent uh, to Taiwan. There has been a lot of outreach to um, uh, international partners as well as we work through this issue. Uh, but I expect we'll have more in the coming days to share with you on the next steps here. Go ahead. Hey, Jeff, thanks. Two questions. The first is on Texas. Mm -hmm. Some folks have come home to astronomical electric bills, mm -hmm. uh, and there are you know stories about those being the result of deregulation uh, and other issues being the result of light regulation. I wonder if the president plans to weigh in on that or talk to that. Does he still plan to go to Texas, or does he plan to go to Texas this week? Sure. Well, the president is eager to go to Texas. I traveled with him on, Mich to, on Michigan, to Michigan, I should say, uh, on Friday, and he was closely tracking, uh, of course, the, the work that FEMA was underway. He spoke with his acting administrator on the way back from that trip. He has been getting updates from his national security team over the course of the weekend, uh, and he wants to go and show his support. Uh, he also is uh, fully aware of the footprint of a president of the United States and everything that comes with that, traveling to a disaster area, but we are hopeful uh, that that trip can happen as early as this week. Sure. One more question on the, hopefully, getting a preview of the timber of tonight's speech. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if there is a worry from the White House that, given positive news on the coronavirus front, that people will let down their guards, as has happened in the past, and numbers will go up or spike again. Does the president plan to address any of that tonight, or is it just reflecting on the grim milestone? You know, the president uh, felt it was important on a personal level and human level to uh, mark the lives lost over the past year, uh, nearly year of this pandemic. And that's the purpose of tonight, both the remarks he'll be delivering, but also the moment of silence uh, that we will all be participating in uh, from wherever you are located. Um, but, you know, he is also quite mindful. So the, the, tonight is not the night to, uh, to uh, give advice to the public or give an update on progress being made, but he has at every opportunity he has been given from last Friday to uh, most times he's speaking publicly, uh, convey that uh, he, his focus and his commitment is on getting the American Rescue Plan passed, ensuring we have enough vaccines to vaccinate 300 million Americans, but the American people have a role to play here as well, which is wearing masks, social distancing. Everybody wants to get back to normal, but the president, the federal government can't do that alone. It is going to take everybody participating in that process to uh, to get closer to normalcy in the country. Uh, go ahead in the back. Thank you, Jan. I have one question and one from Canadian uh, mm -hmm. journalist. Uh, this is follow-up on Nord Stream 2. Several Republican members of Congress uh, criticized the administration for a failure to name new targets uh, for sanctions related to Nord Stream 2 uh, in a report required by Congress. And Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen is also asking for uh, explanation. And just today, foreign ministers of Poland and Ukraine urged President Trump, uh, President Biden to stop the project. Your response? Well, President Biden's view remains that Nord Stream 2 is a bad deal 
It's a bad deal because it divides Europe, it exposes Ukraine and Central Europe to Russian manipulation, and because it goes against Europe's own stated energy and security goals, which I think is a shared concern that many of the individuals you mentioned have expressed. We're continuing to monitor activity to, um, uh, to complete or to certify uh, the pipeline, and if such activity takes place, we'll make a determination on the applicability of sanctions. And sanctions are only one of many important tools to ensure energy security, so we're also going to work with with our allies and partners to reinforce European energy security and to safeguard against the sort of predatory behavior we have warned against. Uh, this is a question from uh, James uh, McCartan from the Canadian press, mm -hmm. ahead of uh, President Biden's uh, meeting with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, so he's asking, what commitments is the President prepared to make to Prime Minister regarding the continued detention of two Canadians in China, and is the President Biden willing to make exceptions from his by American provisions for Canadian contractors and suppliers? Well, on the second one, um, you know, he signed an executive order. Uh, we're of course evaluating procurement. Uh, uh, components of that, uh, but no changes um, anticipated. Of course, the Prime Minister will bring up what, whatever he would like to bring up, as is true of any bilateral meeting. Uh, we expect the President during the meeting to highlight the strong and deep partnership between the United States and Canada as neighbors, friends, and NATO allies, that they will discuss issues of mutual interest from COVID-19 to climate change and the economic ties that bind our countries, as well as the deep people-to-people -people bonds we share. And after the conclusion of the meeting, I'm sure we'll have a readout of what was discussed and communicated during uh, our his first bilateral meeting. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, thanks, Jen. Even while acknowledging the grim milestone that we're hitting today of 500,000 deaths in the country, it's worth mentioning that around the country, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths currently are plummeting. Um, and as the pace of uh, vaccination increases, I'm wondering, does the administration think that we're either at or close to a sort of turning point as it comes to the pandemic? Well, I certainly understand the question, and it's one that I'm sure all of your friends and neighbors are asking you as well. Um, but I, I know there'll be a briefing later this afternoon with our health experts, as we do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, you know, I would say, though, that 500,000, a milestone of 500,000 deaths is certainly not something we're celebrating. And it's hardly something, it's something to commemorate and to take a moment to remember all of the families that have been impacted across the country. Uh, we feel there has been some progress made. Uh, we're leading the world in the number of vaccine vaccinations administered, and second only to Israel in the share of population fully vaccinated. We're, of course, implementing new masking requirements to make sure people stay safe. But as someone alluded to or in an earlier question, we need to remain vigilant, both from the federal government, uh, the American people need to, um, you know, and uh, it's, it's still going to be months and months uh, of, of sacrifice, uh, of work, of, of suffering, unfortunately, in order to get through the pandemic. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.